Good evening and welcome to Right Here, Right Now Radio here on Sin Nation. You're with Eleanor, Ellie and Lucy. <laughs> Before we get into our original submissions for tonight and some works by some of our favourite authors, we've got something important to do. Yes, we do. Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land, the House of Sin and Studio Stand, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respects to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. Before we get started, we'd also like to give a quick content warning as we're reading creative works tonight. Um, some themes may some things covered might not be for everyone, so if sensitive or little ears are tuned in, we recommend you switch stations to our sister station, SIN 90.7. For the rest of you, though, <laughs> welcome. Please stay. <laughs> to kick us off tonight, I've got a piece by none other than Roald Dahl, who you will probably be familiar with for his children's work. But a few people know that he did do a series of short adult stories and one of those stories is titled The Butler, and I'll be reading it for you this evening. As soon as George Cleaver had made his first million, he and Mrs Cleaver moved out of their small suburban villa and into an elegant London house. They acquired a French chef called Monsieur Esrajan and an English butler called Tibbs, both wildly expensive. With the help of these two experts, the Cleavers set out to climb the social ladder and began to give dinner parties several times a week on a lavish scale. But these dinners never seemed quite to come off. There was no animation, no spark to set the conversation alight, no style at all. Yet the food was superb and the service faultless. What the heck's wrong with our parties, Tibbs? Mr Cleaver said to the butler. Why don't nobody never loosen up and let themselves go? Tibbs inclined his head to one side and looked at the ceiling. I hope, sir, you will not be offended if I offer a small suggestion. What is it? It's the wine, sir. What about the wine? Well, sir, Monsieur Esrajan serves superb food. Superb food should be accompanied by superb wine. But you serve them a cheap and very odious Spanish red. Then why in heaven's name didn't you say so before, you twit? cried Mr Cleaver. I'm not short of money. I'll give them the best flipping wine in the world if that's what they want. What is the best wine in the world? Claret, sir, the butler replied, from the greatest chateau in Bordeaux. Lafitte, Latour, Haute-Briand, Margot, Morton, Rothschild and Cheval Blanc. And from only the very greatest vintage years, which are, in my opinion, 1906, 1914, 1929 and 1945. Cheval Blanc was also magnificent in 1895 and 1921, and Hauprion in 1906. Buy them all, said Mr Cleaver. Fill the flipping cellar from top to bottom. I can try, sir, the butler said, but wines like these are extremely rare and cost a fortune. I don't give a hoot what they cost, said Mr Cleaver. Just go out and get them. That was easier said than done. Nowhere in England or in France could Tibbs find any wine from 1895 1906, 1914 or 1921. But he did manage to get hold of some 29s and 45s. The bills for these wines were astronomical. They were in fact so huge that even Mr Cleaver began to sit up and take notice. And his interest quickly turned into outright enthusiasm when the butler suggested to him that a knowledge of wine was a very considerable social asset. Mr Cleaver bought books on the subject and read them from cover to cover. He also learned a great deal from Tibbs himself, who taught him, among other things, just how wine should be properly tasted. First, sir, you sniff it long and deep with your nose, right inside the top of the glass, like this. Then you take a mouthful and you open your lips a tiny bit and suck in air, letting the air bubble through the wine. Watch me do it. Then you roll it vigorously around your mouth and finally you swallow it. In due course, Mr Cleaver came to regard himself as an expert on wine, and inevitably he turned into a colossal bore. Ladies and gentlemen, he would announce at dinner, holding up his glass, this is a Margot 29, the greatest year of the century, fantastic bouquet, smells of cowslips, 
and notice especially the aftertaste and how the tiny trace of tannin gives it that glorious astringent quality. Terrific, ain't it? The guests would nod and sip and mumble a few praises, but that was all. What's the matter with the silly twerps? Mr Cleaver said to Tibbs after this had gone on for some time. Don't none of them appreciate a great wine? The butler laid his head to one side and gazed upward. I think they would appreciate it, sir, he said, if they were to ta able to taste it, but they can't. What the heck do you mean they can't taste it? I believe, sir, that you have instructed Monsieur Essargent to put liberal quantities of vinegar in the salad dressing. What's wrong with that? I like vinegar. Vinegar, the butler said, is the enemy of wine. It destroys the palate. The dressing should be made of pure olive oil and a little lemon juice. Nothing else. Hogwash, said Mr Cleaver. As you wish, sir. I'll say it again, Tibbs. You're talking hogwash. The vinegar don't spoil my palate one bit. You are very fortunate, sir, the butler murmured, backing out of the room. That night at dinner, the host began to mock his butler in front of the guests. Mr Tibbs, he said, has been trying to tell me I can't taste my wine if I put vinegar in the salad dressing. Right, Tibbs? Yes, sir, Tibbs replied gravely. And I told him hogwash, didn't I, Tibbs? Yes, sir. This wine, Mr Cleaver went on, raising his glass, tastes to me exactly like a Chateau Lafitte 45. And what's more, it is a Chateau Lafitte 45. Tibbs, the butler, stood very still and erect near the sideboard, his face pale. If you'll forgive me, sir, he said, that is not a Lafitte 45. Mr Cleaver swung round in his chair and stared at the butler. What the heck do you mean, he said. There's the empty bottles beside you to prove it. These great clarets, being old and full of sediment, were always decanted by Tibbs before dinner. They were served in cut glass decanters, while the empty bottles, as is the custom, were placed on the sideboard. Right now, two empty bottles of Lafitte 45 were standing on the sideboard for all to see. The wine you are drinking, sir, the butler said, happens to be that cheap and rather odious Spanish red. Mr Cleaver looked at the wine in his glass, then at the butler. The blood was coming to his face now. His skin was turning scarlet. You're lying, Tibbs, he said. No, sir, I'm not lying, the butler said. As a matter of fact, I have never served you any other wine but Spanish red since I've been here. It seemed to suit you very well. I don't believe him, Mr Cleaver cried out to his guests. The man's gone mad. Great wines, the butler said, should be treated with reverence. It is bad enough to destroy the palate with three or four cocktails before dinner, as you people do, but when you slosh vinegar over your food into the bargain, then you might just as well be drinking dishwater. Ten outraged faces around the table stared at the butler. He had caught them off balance. They were speechless. This, the butler said, reaching out and touching one of the empty bottles lovingly with his fingers, this is the last of the 45s. The 29s have already been finished, but they were glorious wines. Monsieur Esrajon and I enjoyed them immensely. The butler bowed and walked quite slowly from the room. He crossed the hall and went out of the front door of the house into the street, where Monsieur Esrajon was already loading their suitcases into the boot of the small car which they owned together. That was The Butler by Roald Dahl. What a great piece. So I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear that Roald Dahl keeps his colourful writing, even when writing for adults. You know? Yeah, that's so true, actually. Yeah. What a great storyteller. There's something so playful about it all, regardless of who he's writing for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. definitely. I think that's very Very true. cheeky. <laughs> very cheeky. <laughs> uh, so up next, we're going to have a recording from our fourth host, Kate Mullally, who's not here tonight, um, but she's sent us in um, a lovely piece called Hills into Plain. Um, don't forget that if you ever wanted to submit to Right Here, Right Now, you can always send us an email to Right Here Radio, that's W R I T here radio at gmail.com Hills into Plain A poem by Kate Mullally 
Soft brown hills rolling down into a plain. Woolly wiry grass coating the ground. Echoes carried on the wind, leaving a stain. Upon the souls of spirits found in their earthy beds. Sweet smelling dreams swallowed by the air, no longer loose floating threads. Winding a path not likely followed. Soft brown hills rolling down into a plain. Mist of the ancients rolling around. Clouding visions causing great bane. Soft ghostly footsteps make nary a sound. Songs of past, li- past lives floating into our heads. The melodies of those who wallowed through the mur- murky farmsteads. Thank you, Kate Mullally there, one of our other hosts here at Right Here, Right Now Radio, and that was called Hills Into Plain. Now, Ellie, what do you have next for us? I have a poem uh, by the great Adrian Rich. Uh, it's called Diving Into the Wreck. It's quite a famous poem. You might have heard of it. It's one of my favourites, so I'm going to read that for you now. First, having read the Book of Myths and loaded the camera and checked the edge of the knife blade, I put on the body armour of black rubber, the absurd flippers, the grave and awkward mask. I am having to do this, not like Costeau with his assiduous team aboard the sun-flooded schooner, but here, alone. There is a ladder. The ladder is always there, hanging innocently, close to the side of the schooner. We know what it is for, we know who have used it. Otherwise, it is a piece of marmite floss, some sundry equipment. I go down. Rung after rung and still, the oxygen immerses me, the blue light, the clear atoms of our human air. I go down. My flippers cripple me. I crawl like an insect down the ladder, and there is no one to tell me when the ocean will begin. First the air is blue, and then it is bluer, and then green, and then black, and I am blacking out, and yet my mask is powerful. It pumps my blood with power. The sea is another story. The sea is not a question of power I have learnt. I've I have to learn alone, to turn my body without force in the deep element. And now it is easy to forget what I came for, among so many who have always lived here, swaying their crelatinate fans between the reefs, and besides, you breathe differently down here. I came to explore the wreck. The words are purposes, the words are maps. I came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail. I stroke the beam of my lamp slowly along the flank of something more permanent than fish or weed. The thing I came for, the wreck and not the story of the wreck, the thing itself and not the myth, the drowned face always staring towards the sun. The evidence of damage worn by salt and sway into this threadbare beauty. The ribs of the disaster curving their assertion among the tentative haunters. This is the place and I am here, the mermaid whose dark hair streams black, the merman in his armoured body. We circle silently about the wreck. We dive into the hold. I am she. I am he. Whose drowned face sleeps with open eyes. Whose breasts still bear the stress. Whose silver, copper, vermile cargo lies. Obscurely inside barrels. Half wedged and left to rot. We are the half destroyed instruments that once held to a course the water-eaten log, the fouled compass. We are, I am, you are. By cowardice or courage, the one who find our way back to this scene, carrying a knife, a camera, 
a book of myths in which our names do not appear. That there was Diving into the Wrecked, into the Wreck by Adrienne Rich. She was an American poet, essayist and feminist, um, a widely read poet and, and quite influential. Um, yeah, definitely one of our favourites. We've had, uh, we've read out her work earlier on our show um, a few weeks ago, The Trees as well. So mm. you can always check us out um, online. Have a listen to our podcast if you want to hear some more. <laughs> All right, now we're going to move to a submission that we had from Ash Fox. Um, This is a short story and it's called Ebb and Flow. Mum moved to the little seaside town just before I was born. When I was young, she would tell me about the city. She would tell me about the job she had there with the jacket that had her name, Florence, stitched on the front in white cursive letters, and about all the people coming and going who never stopped to say hello or ask about the weather. She would tell me about the football fans that would walk through the drizzle on their way to the trains with their tattered scarves pulled up over their noses. She would tell me all about the restaurants that served strange, colourful food from all over the world and had pretty glowing lights strung up in their doorways and glossy paper menus on their tables. She would tell me about the laneways that snuck along the backsides of buildings that were packed so full of coffee shops and customers that there was hardly enough room for that fat businessman to turn around once, they, once he ordered his coffee. I never knew the city that Mum knew because I'd never been there, but I always loved hearing her talk about it, and I try my hardest to imagine what such a place might look like. After she told me about the city, I would beg her to take me there, but all she would say is, Oh, my darling Ebony, maybe one day... I can remember our house. It sat alone on the sheltered cliffs, sh- sheltered side of the cliffs, facing away from the little seaside town. It was covered in weather-battered, paint-peeling green timber panels that looked like a gigantic tortoise shedding its skin. I remember the steep stone path that led from our back door all the way down to the backyard of sand and rocks and cracking, crashing ocean waves. Mum made a sign to nail to our letterbox from a piece of driftwood. It had both our names etched into it in drips of blue paint. The driftwood was too small to fit our full names, so Mum shortened us to ebb and flow. In the early mornings, I would watch Mum stack our firewood stove full of newspaper and twigs, and we would sit in the kitchen and wait for the sun to let itself in through our window. Mum always made a big pot of tea once the stove had thawed the room out, and I would wait patiently, my eyes following the drops of water on the window running all the way to the bottom pane, as the glass above the sink defrosted. We would drink our tea together with the teapot set in the middle of the table between the two of us. It was always just the two of us. On the mornings, when the weather was clear enough, we would put on our red rubber boots and heavy woolen coats and go down to the water to try to spot the lighthouse on the far side of the bay or watch the fishermen sitting in their deck chairs on the jetty at the foot of the cliffs, drinking beer and slowly piling the cans up next to their coolers like great mounds of dirt next to a mining shaft. From the jetty, we would walk into town, Mum holding my hand as we passed the shops one by one until the grimy glass door of Mr Tippett's fish and chip shop swooned above my head. Even with both my hands pressed flat against the glass, I never had enough strength to open that door. Mum often struggled to push it open too, but it always gave in against her shoulder and all of her weight. It was the only shop I ever wanted to go in, if only to let my nose and tongue feast on the fat cloud of oil and salt that hung to the air like a blanket. Every time we entered, Mr Tippett would bellow, Ah, yes, my favourite customers, Ebb and Flo, who come and go. Mum would always laugh and I would hold on to her leg and try to act brave, even though Mr Tippett's booming voice hurt my ears. We would wait for our food to fry and then walk back past the shops and up to the jetty where the fishermen sat and chose a spot where we could be alone. Then we would eat with our legs hanging over the water, the splash of the waves washing the sand from our toes, from the toes of our red rubber boots. Watching the sun drift slowly down behind the churning blanket of ocean that lay before us, I would gaze up at Mum and squeeze her hand as we picked at the pile of chips that was nestled between the two of us. It was always just the two of us. 
On the days when the wind was at its wildest, we would wrap our thickest scarves up to our noses and push through the storm, marching along the gummy sand near the path that led to our back door, searching for little treasures that the tide, the high tide might have left for us. I adored seashells, and Mum always helped me find the best ones to take home. The mantle above the stove in the kitchen was eventually swallowed up by our most prized discoveries. The ones that didn't make it to the trophy shelf became necklaces that we would tie together with fishing wire and show off to the old ladies at the general store who had holes in their pantyhose and smelled like soap and shampoo. Sometimes at low tide, we would find crabs on the beach and build homes for them out of sand and sticks. Mum always made me put the crabs back on the beach when she found me hiding them in my coat pockets. I always hoped that I would sneak one back home and keep it as a pet, but secretly I knew that their home was on the beach, just as mine was in the weather-battered tortoise house with Mum. The days stopped and started as I grew older. During these days, Mum grew quieter. She stayed in bed for days at a time, and we even had a doctor out to the house to check on her. The doctor told Mum that there wasn't anything wrong with her and left his number for us to call if she needed him. I didn't like seeing Mum in bed all day with her blankets bunched up in swelling peaks and troughs. I placed her red rubber boots against the steel post of her bed and told her that the sea must have brought new treasures for us to find, but all she could do was roll over and mumble, Oh, my darling Ebony, maybe tomorrow. The neighbours from the other side of the hill came over with soup in thermoses and, in short, sad chuckles, told Mum that there were easier ways to get out of doing the cooking. I learned how to light the stove in the kitchen with newspaper and twigs. I would boil tea for us and place it in the middle of the table. Sometimes Mum would sit with me, wrapped up in a blanket that she dragged with her from the bed. She never said a word. Her glassy gaze would stay glued to the, dr the drops of water running down the window. She had sickly eyes that I didn't recognise anymore. I spent my early teenage years wondering if Mum remembered that there were two of us. I felt like It felt like there was only me. The, the thought scratched my mind so viciously that it began to feel like there were no other thoughts worth thinking about. I wanted my mum back, and I wanted this quiet, miserable woman with her sickly, dead eyes to leave our tortoise house. One evening, as the stove fire in the kitchen was smouldering, I screamed at the pile of blankets on mum's bed. The blankets did not speak or move. In the corner of the room sat her sat her pair of dusty red rubber boots. I hurled them at the blankets in a rage of tears and shouted, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, until I heard the sobbing of the quiet, miserable woman. I remember running to the kitchen to smash the seashells on the mantel until they became dusty, pearlescent cornflakes. I pulled my own tiny red rubber boots with sandy toes from underneath my bed. I ran down the steps and out to the jetty where the fishermen left their beer cans. I heaved them into the wind and the waves, shrieking and shaking with sadness and loneliness. There was no one around to see me, only the churning blanket of miserable black ocean. Eventually I left the little seaside town for the city in my heavy denim coat and red leather boots. I remember walking into town past all the shops until I reached the bus stop with the grey plastic bench seat and burned metal garbage bin that sat next door to Mr Tippett's fish and chip shop. The grimy glass door had grown grimier while I grew older and Mum grew quieter. I saw Mr Tippett through the glass and he threw his hand in the air to catch my eye. I could hear him in my head, bellowing and booming out my name. I never had the, enough strength to open that door. That was Ebb and Flow by Ash Fox, a submission to us here at Right Here, Right Now. And you can always submit your work too. If you want to send it into our email, radio at gmail.com. That's W-R-I-T-E, radio at gmail.com. Thank you very much for that, Ash, and beautifully read as well by you, Lucy. Um, that was such a beautifully visual piece, I feel. Like. Yeah, it really was. I think it really captured, like, a winter seaside town really well. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm. So next up we have another submission uh, for us tonight. This one is by from Lachlan Mitchell and it is a poem. It was a borderline fantasy filled with fruit and green plants. Sunlight burns the balcony as the leaves start dance. Sunny waters glisten through the paint, slipping through hands and under skin, 
screams terrifyingly faint, bound by chains so fragile, but thin. Carpets made of clouds, candlelit conversations a must, whispers not making the sound that would be drowned politely by lust. Peaches so wicked and ripe lounge around forever so casually. The zip ties and late nights, a love that would remain a borderline fancy. That was a poem by a submitter here at Right Here Radio, Lachlan Mitchell. Thank you very much for that submission, Lachlan. <laughs> yes, thank you, Lachlan. Um, Lachlan is my brother, and um, thus I could not read out a love poem. It was just too much, but um, <laughs> thanks, Lockie, for your submission. And thank you to all our submission submitters tonight. If you do wish to submit, you can, of course, email us at righthereradio at gmail.com. That is W-R-I-T-E, here, radio at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on our social media. We're, on, we're online uh, on Facebook at Right Here Radio and uh, on Instagram at the same handle. Next, we have a a poem by the incredible, the phenomenal uh, Maya Angelou reading her poem, Phenomenal Woman. Maya Angelou, uh, you may have heard of her. She was an American poet, singer, memorist and civil rights activist. Um, Her poetry always leaves me feeling incredibly moved and I I hope uh, it does the same for you. Maya Angelou reading Phenomenal Woman. Many people wonder where my secret lies. I'm not cute or built to suit a fashion model size. When I start to tell them, they think I'm telling lies. I say, it's in the reach of my arms, the span of my hips, the stride of my step, the curl of my lips. I'm a woman, phenomenally. I walk into a room just as cool as you please, and to a man the fellows stand or fall down on their knees. Then they swarm around me, a hive of honeybees. I say, it's the fire in my eyes, the flash of my teeth, the swing in my waist, the joy in my feet. I'm a woman, phenomenally. Men themselves have wondered what they see in me. They try so much, but they can't touch my inner mystery. When I try to show them, they say they still can't see. I say, it's in the arch of my back, the sun of my smile, the ride of my breasts, the grace of my style. I'm a woman, phenomenally. Now you understand just why my head's not bowed. I don't shout or jump about or have to talk real loud. When you see me passing, It ought to make you proud. I say, it's in the click of my heels, the bend of my hair, the palms of my hands, the need for my care. Because I'm a woman, phenomenally, phenomenal woman, all you women and me. Beautiful. Pick there, Ellie. That was Maya Angelou reading Phenomenal Woman. Mm-hmm. And what a phenomenal woman she was. Yes. Speaking of phenomenal women, um, I'm going to read a short story by Marina Keegan, who was a recent graduate of Yale University and a young writer um, who unfortunately died shortly after her graduation. And in memory of her talent and um, skill, her family and teachers and friends put together a book of her work and it's called The Opposite of Loneliness. And this is a short story from that book called Sclerotherapy. Karen found out the tattoo of the Chinese character on her right ankle actually meant soybean five months after she got it. Inner resolve and outer peace, a general level-headedness and tranquility, was the translation printed under the thin black character she had chosen from the chart on the wall. 
Soybean was the translation her brother's Asian roommate awkwardly gave her after she modelled it for him in the smoky dorm room on the fifth floor. He asked if the artist was Chinese and she shook her head. She asked if he was high and he shook his. Karen slid the leg of her jeans back down and bit a nail. The roommate fidgeted. I mean, he probably just copied them onto the chart from a takeout menu. The tang of incense clung to Karen as she walked down five flights of stairs. So it's five veins tonight, right? The nurse made small movements with her pencil as she flipped between thin papers on a clipboard. Karen didn't respond, but shifted her weight back in the chair. The thickly set woman pushed her lips out and adjusted the waistband of her brightly patterned scrubs. Five veins, yes? The question was repeated slowly, with an emphasis on the word five. That's what they tell me. She was a woman of 62. It wasn't her first time sitting in the polyester recliner. Wasn't the first time the thick substance would be injected carefully into her calves. She hated the experience. Not just the pain of her legs thickening then thinning, but also the two-hour view of nothing but her ankles. Socks were usually the solution, folded down and over the youthful rebelliousness stamped above her ankle bone. But in the sclerotherapy clinic, there were no rigid socks to cover her shins and no smile to cover her keen self-consciousness. In the sclerotherapy clinic, she thought, there were only fat nurses and varicose veins. The blood in Karen's veins was beginning to drain out. Her body lay inflexibly, strapped to the recliner, tilted at a harsh angle so her feet were raised high above her head. The sting of the injected gel still tingled over her skin, making the thin, unshaven hairs on her legs stand up. All right now, Karen, try to relax. The nurse opened a small drawer and removed a bundle of compression stockings. I'm sure you know the drill by now. She squirted down the nozzle of the Lubiderm bottle and thick white lotion plopped on into her hand. But remember, you can't take these things off for two weeks unless you're lying down. Her hands rubbed each other and attained an oily glisten in the office light. Your veins got to glue themselves together, see? So the blood is forced to find another path. Karen nodded and blinked slowly. What does it mean? She had been asked by a co-worker one spring about 20 years ago when sweat had rubbed the usual band-aid off her ankle. Karen tugged at her earlobe. It means inner resolve and outer peace, a general level-headedness and tranquility. The woman nodded, smiled politely and turned back to her desk. I was 19, Karen said, almost sarcastically. She opened her mouth again but realised she had nothing to say. The question always bothered her, made her hate herself more with each false explanation. But she kept at it, as if it might somehow compensate for having soybean etched permanently into her skin. Karen swung her chair left and stared into her computer screen. The case she was studying stared back, its importance suddenly mocking her. Oh, the nurse paused. I didn't know you had a tattoo. She grinned slightly. What does it mean, miss? Karen had expected it. In fact, she was surprised it had taken this long. It means inner resolve and outer peace, a general level-headedness and tranquility, she lied, she thought, for the same reason she was getting her varicose veins removed. The nurse exhaled and tucked her hair behind her ears. That's nice. Very peaceful. She began unbuckling Karen's legs. Did you get it in China? No, I got it in Brooklyn. I was 19. The nurse carefully lifted her calves and started pulling the beige compression stockings over her skin. The edamame jeered at her. She was trying to enjoy herself, but this type of thing always seemed to happen at Chinese restaurants. If it hadn't been her daughter's choice, if she hadn't just returned from college, and if they hadn't been meeting her really serious this time boyfriend, she would have objected. But it was all of those things, so she kept her mouth shut. So Brian... Karen looked up at him. I hear you're thinking about business school. Brian responded, but the answer sort of floated through her. She imagined the black lines on her ankle, thickening with glee as she slowly filled her body with soybeans. Karen wondered if she was as pathetic as this thought suggested. 
if she was so preoccupied with her own sense of herself that basic conversation was beyond her. She looked up at Brian and nodded. I see. His hand was resting on her daughter's next to the chopsticks. It had been months, maybe years, since she had actually thought about it. It wasn't something that entered her daily musings. Socks on during the day, socks off at night, dresses and skirts meant band-aids, an almost unconscious ritual in her routine. Karen glanced at the couple glancing at each other. She wondered if Brian could be put in the category of impulsive decisions, if he was her daughter's version of not bothering to consult a language dictionary. There you are, all done. The compression stockings were tight around her thighs now, and the polyester recliner was humming as it tilted slowly upward. The room seemed slightly darker than when she had entered, and the lack of light peering through the edges of the blinds told her it was probably late afternoon. The nurse walked to the corner and began rinsing her hands. Karen studied her legs. Her varicose veins no longer popped out like tributaries leading to her ankle, but she wasn't pleased. The thin, dark outlines could still be seen, slightly, beneath the lean nylon of the stockings. Images of her brother's incense haze dorm, the co-worker at her firm, and the evening when she first met her son-in-law drifted in her head. She gently placed her feet on the floor and lifted her weight down off the chair. Some things, Karen thought, couldn't be flattened out at the sclerotherapy clinic. Take care now, ma'am. The nurse was drying her hands on a paper towel. My tattoo, Karen said, pausing in the doorway before shutting it behind her, actually means soybean. (laughs) That was Sclerotherapy by Marina Keegan from her book The Opposite of Loneliness, a compilation of essays and stories. Great. I loved that one. Yeah. (laughs) Such a shame that she didn't get to write more. I know. I um, read the book and felt really uh, moved by the fact that I'd enjoyed so much of it, but there was no more to be had. Mm-hmm. There's something bittersweet about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. On now to a poet that we have read before on our show here. We... Uh, we have read A Chorus of Cells by Peggy Friedberg. Uh, she is a poet that uh, lived to be 107. And uh, this is from her book, um, Poems from the Pond, 107 Years of Words and Wisdoms. And it was edited by Laurie David. Uh, this poem she wrote at 92. It's called Falling in Love. <laughs> What kind of an instrument was I when he found it? And, because his blood impelled him to, daringly, for caution, was very strong, reached a broad, square finger and plucked for the first time one of its strings. I could have called myself a Stradivarius, for for though I, of course, was just an ordinary violin waiting ready to be held for the first time in a musician's hands, primed to be played, mobilised by all my busy genes to become music, when I first felt the quiver of its stirring sound. I became, imparadised, the most priceless stringed instrument on the face of the earth. After all those years of lying in the curvaceous coffin of a velvet-lined violin case, snapped shut, unborn, but fully contoured, waiting to emerge and breathe to make my destined music, one day he came and dared to pluck a string. Life made its first whole sound. That there was... Falling in Love by Peggy Friedberg. It's from her book, Poems from the Pond, 107 Years of Words and Wisdom. It was edited by Laurie Davis. And I think it's uh, really nice that, you know, at 92 you can still write something about falling in love. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And I really like how... um, she kind of uses music as a metaphor and on instruments as a metaphor for for herself. You know, some love mm. is something to be kind of discovered and played. Yeah. Yeah. Learning about each other, mm. like learning an instrument. 
after all those years mm-hmm. of probably many loves. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a very incredible woman and an incredible poem. Next, uh, we have a spoken word piece uh, taken from uh, The Guardian. Uh, Solly Raphael from Coffs Harbour in New South Wales, he uh, recently did a spoken word piece at the Australian Poetry Slam National Final, which he actually won, uh, and he's only 12 years old, so this is really incredible. Here now is Solly Raphael. Air. It's the invisible goodness that links our brain with full gain, so we think without a strain and without it would probably go insane. And it goes to our blood veins, it acts like a water main. The more we get, the more our plants grow. The more our cells grow, the more we grow in wealth and health. And although our lives are stressful and pressurised, with anxiety and control, and you're still working on relaxing your soul while running around the magnetic pole looking for your self-control, and although it's taking its toll, we still breathe. We breathe in. We breathe out. Since the day of our arrival, we've been killing our own survival and it's vital that our societal title is put aside so we can become one with our rivals. We breathe in, we breathe out. So don't sit around waiting for your life to caper. Instead, grab your pens and your paper, your voices and your eyes so we can reach for the sky and look down on the world and tell them why we need to make a change to our lives. Because we don't have to be these average, everyday humans anymore. We can show this world what we feel, see and think and that might be the hidden link between peace, war and humans causing our own race to be extinct. And sometimes we need to breathe out just so we can breathe in kindness and passion because this Australian air is polluted with choking for our own depression and if we don't fight for our rights, they mix them and more fight and people tie so you can think as fast as me of light but if you're not speaking your own side, even though you might start the fight to people light and rewrite how we should reunite, we may as well do a plebiscite for if we should keep celebrating how the blacks were killed by the whites. So get out of your seats, rise up, open your windows, let fresh air flood your homes, flood your lungs, flood your brains, change the way you think, change the way you live, open your eyes and breathe out yesterday's air and breathe in today's opportunities. Just now, you've heard uh, Solly Raphael at the Australian uh, Spoken Word Poetry Slam uh, National Final, which he won. Uh, he's from Coffs Harbour in New South Wales, and at the time, uh, he was 12 years old, so a really incredible young person and someone I'm sure we will hear from for many years to come. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. I can't imagine getting up in front of an audience like that at 12. No, not That's at all. That's incredibly brave of him, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of getting up in front of people, um, there is uh, something I wanted to mention to our listeners. Um, if they don't know about uh, the moth already, um, it's something that is held every uh, month in different places all around the world. It's held every month uh, in Melbourne at Howler, um, every uh, few Monday nights and last week on the show we played a story from the moth um, the uh, the reader's name was Phyllis Bodwin and um, the moth is a storytelling event so if you love our show and what we do here because what we're doing really at the end of the day is telling stories mm-hmm. uh, whether it be through poetry or, or short fiction um, you, you might like the moth, and we thought we should give them a shout-out considering we did play a, a story from there last week. So have a look uh, at the Moth in Melbourne Facebook page. It's something that uh, if you like our show, you'll probably like as well. And it's true that there's a theme every show, is that right? Yeah, there is. So I'm just having a look now. I, I know that the next one is education. Um, so you pop your name in a in a hat or a bag, I think they have, and um, if your name gets called, uh, you can get up and tell a five-minute story about education, which is pretty cool. There you go. That sounds very And cool. is it true that you've read a story out at one of these nights before, Ellie? It is true. <laughs> uh, the... 
the theme was lost and found and I told the story about how when I was 18 I I left my car at the supermarket Mm. and I forgot and reported it stolen. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. The police uh, did come and I I had to call them back and say actually the car's not stolen. And what they do when you report your car unstolen is uh, they come and check that it's that it's not you and that it's you and not like the robbers just calling up and saying hey it's all good um and yeah my my partner at the time asked if it happened uh often and the policeman said well yeah it does um but he said uh usually they're a lot older (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah head to the moth um we love them here right here right now um they love good stories and so do we Yeah. And speaking of good stories, if you've got one, we do love submissions. So if you'd like to email us at rightheareradio at gmail.com, that's rightheareradio with a W. Now, Lucy, do you have something for us next? Yeah, I'm going to read a poem by Judith Beveridge. She is a uh, contemporary Australian poet, editor and academic. So she does it all. Um, And this is her poem, Woman and Child, and it's from... Wolf notes. They listen to the minor bird sticker in the grass. The child's blue shoes are caked with garden dirt. When he runs, she sees the antics of a pair of wrens. She works the garden. A pot of rusting gardenias has given off its ales and infused the danker germinations of her grief. She watches her son chase pigeons, kick at the leaves piled high, now a magpie adds to his cascades of laughter as he runs with the hose, pours a fine spray, happy to be giving to the grass this silver courtship. She sighs, watches the drops settle in. Today, who can explain the sadness she feels? Surely this day is to be treasured. The sun out, the breeze like a cat's tongue licking a moon of milk, her son expending himself in small, public bursts, happy among clover where bees hover and unfold centrefolds of nectar. Today, who can explain the heaviness in her head, as if all her worries were tomes toward a larger work, one she knows she will never finish, but to which she must keep adding, thought by thought. She sweeps the petals, smells their russet imprint. Soon dusk will come with an envoy, envoy of smoke, and her son outlast her patience by a rose. Already he is tiring, Pulling at the flowers, it won't be long before they'll go in. Listen to the jug purr comfort. He'll sleep and she'll lie back or get up to unhook the cry of her cat from the wire door. Now a few cicadas are idling, giving each other the gun and a cockatoo calls, a haughty felon. She sighs, knowing she won't escape her mood today. The earth turned, or its rank persuasions, her child's petulance flaring like an orchard (laughs) or a cockatoo's unruly crest. Today, she knows she will need to consider her unhappiness of what she is a prisoner, if not the loss of hope's particulars. Her son soaks the path, rinses the sky of its featureless blue. He is giving that water now to everything. Wow, that's such a nice piece. Yeah, it's very, very heavy, very dense, but it's very well written, I think. Sort of beautifully written in what is sounds like a bad day yeah (laughs) yeah it's very true and you know beautiful poetry as we know he can stem from a bad day Mm. Mm. exactly Mm. and now to finish us up for the night ellie what do you have for us um, I thought this was a good n- one to finish on um, just because it's a really uh, fascinating piece by a poet called Dan Davis. He is a First Nations poet um, and the title of this poem, I hope I do it justice, it is uh, Moon Thangudi and that is the Baradar clan's word for the rainbow serpent. Um, so this is an audio clip of Dan Davis uh, reading his poem Moon Then Gutty. And um, yeah, it's a it's a, a really beautiful piece. I really like it. It's from, uh, I found it on a website called Creative Spirits. Um, I mention the source uh, because 
it has a fantastic um, a heap of Indigenous um, and First Australians poetry. Um, and the work on creative spirits has also been archived by the National Library of Australia. So you can find Dan's work at both of those places. Um, so if you like what you're about to hear, definitely go check it out. Thank you to all of our submitters tonight. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. I'm sure we will see you next week. I want to tell you a story now about a friend of mine and yours. He named Muntungari. He roamed this land with cause. Mutangari made every creek, he made the rivers and streams. Mutangari sometimes talked to me at night in my dreams. He tell me how peaceful it was back when when he was creating. How us mob lived off this land, there wasn't any hating. We all knew our boundaries and respected our own dirt. No reason to be greedy, we had plenty, no reason for any hurt. Muntangari the creator, he travelled this land with pride. He rested now, they call him, the Australian Great Divide. Muntangari is the name my mob gave that rainbow snake. One day I reckon that old Muntangari, he gonna awake. Muntangari when he awake, he gonna be real upset. By the way they dig up the earth, and taking what they can get. Taking what was meant to stay, what belongs to this land. Society is full of greed and wealth, it doesn't understand. Muntangari the creator, the one who started the dream. The rainbow snake we know real well, he there for you and me. Like us at facebook.com slash sinmedia. Follow us on Twitter at sinmedia. And come visit us at syn.org.au.